Hello and welcome to Sticky from the Inside, the employee engagement podcast that looks at how to build stickier, competition-smashing, consistently successful organisations from the inside out. I'm your host, Andy Gorham, and I'm on a mission to help more businesses turn the lights on behind the eyes of their employees, light the fires within them, and create tons more success for everyone. This podcast is for all those who believe that's something worth going after and would like a little help and guidance in achieving that. Each episode, we dive into the topics that can help create what I call stickier businesses, the sort of businesses where people thrive and love to work and where more customers stay with you and recommend you to others because they love what you do and why you do it. So if you want to take the tricky out of being sticky, listen on. Okay, so on this show, we have talked about how to make leaders and businesses stickier, as well as all the many other interesting related topics and self-development stuff. But today, today, my friends, we tackle a big one, because I've titled today's episode, How Does a Whole Industry Become Stickier? I mean, I think that sounds like a pretty big question. How does an entire industry hold on to and attract talent and create passionate advocates for its customers. I think this question will be relevant to many industries that are having to move with the times. But rather than have a generic theoretical discussion about it, I want to use the UK hospitality industry, which, as you know, is very close to my heart as our example case today. So we can look at practical ways in which this industry can and needs to evolve today to get stickier. I think the challenges it faces and the strategies it needs to adopt to thrive in this ever-evolving landscape, however, are not unique to them. The world of hospitality has always been a dynamic one, a place where, when we get it right, unforgettable experiences are crafted and cherished. But it can also wear a badge of work that smacks of long, bruising hours and is not particularly well paid, but we dress it up because it's great fun. I mean, is that still right? And as we step into a new post-COVID era marked by a serious generational shift, the demand for more inclusivity and the changes and pressures that puts on leadership raises quite a few questions. How does the UK hospitality industry stay relevant as an employer of choice? How does it attract new talent, retain its shining stars, stay relevant as a career choice and move forward and keep with the times as an industry? Well, today, I think I've got the ideal person with me to explore this topic. Someone who is intimately acquainted with the industry's challenges, its potential and need for transformation. So I'm delighted to say that I have with me on the show today, Karen Bosher. Karen's a seasoned professional with years of senior leadership experience in the UK hospitality sector. She's a passionate advocate for change and equality and also a staunch believer in the power of human leadership. With Karen's help, I think we'll be shining a light on the critical issues facing the industry and I suspect other industries. From the need for greater numbers of senior female leadership, how we need to embrace the arrival and growth of this Gen Z generational cohort, and how things like gender and AI will continue to reshape the employee landscape. So, whoever you are, if you're going to be working within the next 30 years or so, this episode's a must-listen. 
So get ready to be inspired, informed, and engaged as we explore how an entire industry can become stickier. Welcome to the show, Karen. Hello. What a great introduction. Well, that's very kind of you. It's lovely to have you here. I have watched you from afar for many, many years. Our paths may well have crossed, but I don't know. I think I was probably in short trousers and left hospitality <laughs> by, the, by the time. Um, so I, I, I know lots about you. Maybe some of our listeners don't, Karen. So before yeah. we get stuck into this enormous topic today, just do me a favor, will you? Can you just give us a bit of your background, what you're yeah. up to now, where your real focus is today? So thank you very much. And it's great to be on your program. Um, I've I've listened to you avidly. So I think you've got some really good themes. And obviously, this idea of stickiness has brought us together, which is yes. something um, I've been uh, a passionate advocate for many years, actually, before even knowing sticky was a real thing. So mm. I've worked in the retail and hospitality sector for, as you've already said, quite a number of years <laughs> and, um, and had a really uh, varied career, everything from Marks and Spencers, you know, big corporates through to um mother care uh, Woolworths JJB and then latterly the last 10 years I've been known for working at Green King where mm. I was um, managing director last for the last three and a half years and um had a fantastic time working in the hospitality sector but obviously my career is much broader than that so um uh, I ran um urban spaces for Green King and particularly in the London area which is you know, this is a massive issue for for that type of marketplace. So I mm. uh, went through lots of learning, I think, running um, pubs in, in that particular ecosystem. But yeah, also in the premium sectors and um, and, and in some really interesting businesses that I think have, have got now, you've seen broader context of, of challenges about how you attract particularly Gen Z into um, that space, really, and then keep them in there, give them compelling careers. So I think that's what's kind of brought us together. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a sticky connection. That doesn't sound too weird. Um, <laughs> so, which is, which is, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it and, and, and explore. I think it's also for me the broad background of of retail and customer experience, uh, yeah. coupled with you know your latest stint in in hospitality, mm-hmm. and you know if there has been an industry that has been bashed over the last few years, it's hospitality. Looking at your, you know, your your deep experience in other areas and what you saw in hospitality and where we find ourselves today, Karen, mm. what do you see as that landscape, right? What do you see as the challenges that set up this conversation that we're going to have about how an industry needs to change in order to kind of really hang on to its talent and attract new talent? Yeah, it's really interesting, the context, because everybody arrives at this conversation talking about the pandemic and that it's kind of shot. For me, it's shone a light light on a situation that's been going on for a a long time. And then I think the pandemic sort of shuffled down the issue because I definitely know that in the pubs, um, what I witnessed was a lot of people had just kind of been continuing in their little nucleus in their pub space, never really questioning their life purpose or why they did things or how they did things. And then suddenly their whole world was turned on a bit of an axis and then some much more critical questions came out. And even though I think um, Green King did really well from that whole um, situation here in terms of their advocacy for their team and, and retention, I think the industry generally just suffered this massive hemorrhage. I think the, the quoted number is two, 2 million people left yeah. the industry at that point never to be seen again. 
And I don't think it was as a result of the pandemic, but I think the pandemic kind of brought a lot of things to the surface that were otherwise going to happen anyway. I think this this crisis as we see it now and the various initiatives that go into place with things like hospitality rising and all the call outs from the industry bodies, it would have happened anyway. I think we would have reached a level of criticality either through Brexit or through just the way that the workforce is changing that there would have been this um, seizure in the market for good talent anyway. So it's just brought the future forward faster than it might have done. And that's a good thing, really, from my point of view. And obviously, I'm sitting on the periphery of it now. Um, But I think it's a good thing because it's brought... Some of, particularly some of the bigger providers to the table much more quickly because there's an air of crisis about it to say we have to do things faster, we have to be better, we have to look at you know the core route as to why the workplace isn't seen as good enough in the hospitality sector. And I think that springs up in retail. I think it springs up in other sort of minimum and entry level career type opportunities. Um, how do we get better so that we have uh, our fair share of the best talent that's available out there? And certainly, I think the way that, and I don't want to get political about it, but the way that sort of the ecosystem's being set up, the emphasis is on the employers to do more. I think the government sort of say they're doing more, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of this has been left in the hands of the employer to sort out, really. So that, you know, businesses, and at a time when they're already under a lot of financial stress, have then got the added. Um, uh, sort of challenge of having to then invest in infrastructure to make sure that they become more in- compelling as an employer of choice. Yeah, I mean it's it's so much deeper than a than a wage issue or something like that. There's there's there's, there's so many layers to kind of peel back. I was with a bunch of, uh, I guess young. I would call them young compared to me, but young thrusting yeah. Uh, yeah. managers and heads of department from a from a, a pretty good, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, uh, our bar bar company, great energy, fantastic people, um, and and sitting down and talking with these guys about you know the leadership challenges that they've got and trying to help them sort of move forward. I mean, there's a lot of desire and energy, but they are knackered. Yeah, <laughs> they are shot to pieces. Um, and yeah, this maybe- is something we've really got to get over. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that's the maybe that's the key to the door. I do think that leadership creates a huge amount of stickiness in organizations. And it's easy to think that it's about the board or, you know, the strategic direction. You know, we like I've been involved in that whole thing where you think that's what's going to be the rally call. Actually, it's on the ground, sometimes just care and showing up in in places that people feel connected to that, particularly if you're a very large organisation. And I think some of the, you know, some of the most inspiring work and where you see Gen Z as really connecting um, fastest is in those sort of mid, small and mid cap companies where they're following an ideology or a, a more of a tribal philosophy around a bunch of entrepreneurs, maybe young men or women who've got a bit of a philosophy and they go, yeah, you know, when as I get older, I just want to be one of them. And I think then they are creating the most compelling spaces. And 
I think, you know, I, I love Seth Godin, who mm. wrote Tribe. I must have read that book about 30 years ago. I thought, <laughs> yeah, you know, this is definitely going to be the future of everything, that people are going to start to become very specific about their followerships. And I think we're starting to see that get carved out in hospitality quite overtly, that people are saying, I'm going to be quite values-led about type of spaces that I socialise in. I'm going to be very values-led about who I'm prepared to work for. And I want to be in a cohort of people who represent the values that I have as an individual. So sometimes organisations go, these are our values, you must fit those values. I think that's probably going to be an outdated modus operandi. I think people will choose who they are and then they'll find organisations that fit those. As they, and as they mature, those values are likely to change. I'm sure your values now as a, as a I'm not, you're not an older person, but, you know, as a more mature person, are very Bless different you. when you're 18. Yeah, that's good <laughs> kind of me, isn't it? Um but, but I know mine are, and but I take most interest out of pursuing those specific interests, which is why I think things like the alcohol-free debate's really exciting. I think, you know, people's dietary choices are really exciting. And, you know, the large corporates got quite a big challenge because they'll try and cover all of those bases or create individual brands to target it. But if it's not really authentic, I think you get found out really fast because the leadership in the organisation has got to exemplify those values. Otherwise, it doesn't kind of live in the ecosystem. And I think Gen Z is a really savvy about sniffing that out. So they're not prepared to join corporates and just go, yeah, yeah, let's wave the flag. We're all about veganism if actually the leadership doesn't exemplify A hundred percent. I think think this is a wonderful segue into the sort of the Gen Z piece because I've always been a fan of values and I'm people on this podcast are bored of me saying that if you can find the connection between what drives the business and what drives the people within it, you're in a happy yeah. space, right? Yeah. Um, but I think this is becoming more pertinent with this shift in the generational cohort that we are seeing. I guess through age, we're, we're seeing the, the boomers go. The greatest generation, us Generation Xs, you know, we're not as big in numbers. Millennials and Gen Zs in the next six, seven years are going to make up the vast majority of the employee landscape, right? They're some of them are leaders today, but they're going to be the leaders of tomorrow and they're going to bring, I think, a different philosophy. Now, whether you buy into the social science of generational cohort theory or not, I'm not yeah. saying it applies to every single individual in that cohort, but there are some themes. And you're talking about the the importance of a cause, the importance of having a values set that is Mm. exemplified and mirrored, if you like, by an organization, I think is coming to the Mm. forefront, right? But I'm I'm just sitting on a podcast going on about these things. You're you're in there working with people, making these things happen. What what do you see coming through with this generational shift, Karen? Well I, I think there's simply just not enough people in the market to cover the amount of employment opportunity there is. So I think that's the first base and you want people to arrive um into their work their first stage of their work life match fit yeah you know so you know what what is the i think this linkage between how they exit college university school whatever it is to their first job is really important and i do think there's a massive opportunity to strengthen the relationships between educators and employers 
And I think they think apprenticeships is doing that for them. But my observation, having run and been, you know, observing large apprenticeship schemes for a long time, is that it's not fit for purpose yet. There's lots of good work in there. And I've seen some great examples of people coming out with sort of level six and beyond um, qualifications and doing well as a result of it. But it's not enough. And I think particularly when people have no workplace uh, experience, the connectivity and the skills in the workplace to develop those people through, I think need, you know, I think that's, I think that's a, a really big challenge. So I think that's kind of base one. I think then employers being seen as relevant mm. to uh, younger workers. So why am I attracted? And I think that's a massive challenge because you see quite a lot of recruitment materials. And I sometimes think, oh, are they a little bit um are they if i was 18 and i was looking i had i could travel the world as a tiktok influencer or i could go and work in that restaurant yeah. um what am i going to do and and i just think sometimes our our ability to come across as relevant and talk in a language that um uh, younger people understand and are inspired by i think is sometimes a bit of a, a bit of a gap and not all companies can afford big corporate fancy marketing businesses that can come in and really reach into those things so how relevant people sort of assume that young people know who we are and I think the reality is you know and I've got a 21 year old and an 18 year old and I would say oh well of course you know about such and such a brand and they they don't that's not part of their world they're operating in a very different sphere so I think how relevant are you and then I think, how do you reach them? So, you know, how do you start to talk to people and, and talk to them about the industry? Because unfortunately, because there is so much crisis in the hospitality industry, and if you watch the news and some of the fantastic work that the industry is doing to um, sort of put call outs to the government for relief and, and support and all the things that need to happen to make it a viable ecosystem and change the business model, well, that's not very encouraging because if you were a young person looking at that, you think this is a an environment driven by crisis. And um, am I going to have a good career there? Or am I going to be lent on? You know, is it going to be? A, it's a. We talk a lot about minimum wage. Actually, you know, in, in hospitality, there are some really brilliant career path opportunities. Yet it, there seems to be this disconnect between what people say it's going to be like and then what appears in the market as the reality of people's experiences and i think reputation then is very important you know mm. and glass we use glass door a lot i'm not sure how much people or even young people would look at at glass door but i think word of mouth is very important and social media is very important in terms of containing your reputation as an employer so I think it's a little bit of an opportunity that people can start to, without too corporate about it, spread the word about what a great employer they are to work for. Because I think the companies that are doing it very well tend to be smaller. There's a followership around the leadership of those organizations. Maybe those people are showing more entrepreneurial spirit. And those, you know, there is a tendency in younger people to, to think, and we saw this through even, um, like Duke of Edinburgh Awards, you know, people who had been really compromised but trying to turn their lives into productive space would then reach for really inspiring role models to say, actually, I don't want to go and work in a in a baker's, but I do want to be an artisanal baker. Right. And you're going, oh my God, you've gone from like A to Z in terms of expectations. Yes. <laughs> actually, go and get a great, you know, go and get a great apprenticeship with a good bakery company and, and you know, you can do really well from it. But, you know, that it's that expectation in modern times about, 
if I'm going to work in a kitchen, I'm going to go and work for Gordon Ramsay. But the notion of working in a, in a corporate average kitchen, no, that doesn't appeal to me. That's not sexy enough. So how do you, you know, how do you really make that compelling? I think that's what Hospitality Rising is attempting to address, is to say it's more compelling. But there are those outliers out there that, that aren't treating people well, and it is a minimum wage job, and they people don't have great experiences. And unfortunately, it's that tale of people in the industry then that is carrying the message rather than all the people who have great experiences and have earned good livings and had very good lives and fun fun times working in the hospitality industry. So I think that you know, that that whole piece about being relevant to that cohort, but then having a great reputation on employment is really important. I just want to pick up on those. because I think those three things, relevance, career opportunities and reputational management, I think they're really, really important. That 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 relevance, I think we're seeing some polarity because I think we are seeing, like you said, smaller, maybe even medium sized um, entrepreneurial led operators who really do have a belief and a mission and yeah. a personality behind what they're doing. And they are being attractive. I don't know, maybe someone like a pizza pilgrims kind of offer. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that is becoming, that is a bit more attractive because there is yeah. a brand associated with that, that someone can kind of get behind. And I think yeah. if you try and falsify that, if you mm. try and fake that this yeah. generation more than any other just sees peels back and goes well that's not real and yeah. there's there's so little stigma to quitting nowadays if you don't match up to what you say you are yeah you're not in the game are you because you'll you'll recruit you'll spend all that money yeah take someone in and they'll go hold on a second i've peeped behind the curtain that, that is not what this is about and i'm off and and, and you and you yeah. lose that right and, and, and the danger th- is though that people think that that is just the cohort of the entrepreneur whereas right. actually large organizations have never had it so easy for leadership to stand in front of large cohorts of people because of things like this, you know, yeah. and broadcast and social media. I mean, people have said to me, why do you do so much social media? It's because I always saw it as a way of my team seeing me as a leader every right. day. Yeah. I mean, I think you've got to use the channels that people use. I mean, I'm, I'm, that does sound yeah. incredibly simplistic, but, you know, if people listen or watch or read a certain channel, then go and reach out to them there. You I mean, you mentioned about how you reach out i think this is another bit of the change and i know we're seeing it in recruitment and people using you know whatsapp and all the stuff to do interviews and and try and try and keep with it but it's not a kind of nice to have just an an add-on you've really got to understand the channels where your market is i mean it's basic marketing right um that that's what we need so i think that's incredibly clear i wanted to ask you a question and this is i think linked to what you said and probably a huge amount of I may use conscious or unconscious bias in my own experience, right? I yeah. did my service training in the States as part of part of my degree, right? I came back and everybody took the mick saying, oh, you're just a robot. Have a nice day. Missing you already. All that rubbish. And that, <laughs> to me, they failed to understand the training that I got over there because the training I got over there was really just about putting your customer shoes on and really having empathy for what it's like the other side of the bar or the table or whatever. But the customer over there was so evolved, if they didn't like something, they absolutely tore you apart, right? No, this isn't good enough. Go and do me something else. And as a result, the industry had to kind of like make effort to make things better Mm. in the main. Mm. But when you talk to guests, they really respected the really great waiters and waitresses and concierge and all those sorts of bits. That, That was seen as a proper career, right? Yes. 
and do do you really think that people perceive a job in UK hospitality or an opportunity as a proper career now, or is it still seen as it's just a bit of service industry? It's what you do if you can't get a job somewhere else. Well, I, I do think UK hospitality treats tr- treats the front end of the engine like a service mm. um, e- engine, as opposed to the states where um, I think it's really valued. You know, I was very lucky to be able to go across to um, Austin last year and witness some really great operators over there, and it's. Mm very deep in their DNA and they don't compromise on their service. And, it, you know, it can be really different from like a high end sort of restaurant environment or a, you know, deep dish pizza offer, but they do everything and they go in a hundred percent. And anybody that's working in that environment is involved. They've got to represent their brand um, to the highest level, but also they are participating in quite a rich, rich payback system. The tipping mm. system over there is notorious. They earn a lot of money through tips. And I think that's coming next year. It will be really interesting to see how the the regulation around tipping and passing the tips back to the servers mm. will change the ecosystem about reward and recognition. I think it's a really interesting um, you know, it's going to cause an abs- absolute mayhem in sector initially and, yeah. and be a bit of a pain. People are going to be worried about it. But it has got the potential ultimately to change the value creation for the customer and for the server to get into more of an intimate relationship faster. And I think there are some really clever widgets out there which then can, you know, allocate and recognize effort from the part from the point of view of the really sharp end of the business for the server and uh, and allow the customer to reward that electronically or by whatever means. So I'm really looking forward to that. I was in I was in a pub in London this week and they brought the wine over, we drank the wine and I had a tab on. So I went back to pay the tab at the bar and they had charged me a service charge on the bottle of wine, mm-hmm. which I which I gave when I came out, I thought, was that really service? The fact that they walked from the, you know, yeah. if I'd known the service charge on, I think I might have just taken the bottle myself. Yes. And, I was, and I was delighted that they had offered to bring the bottle over because they put it in a cooler and they brought glasses over. I thought, that's nice. And I was kind of really sort of questioning myself as to whether I was being really mean about the tip thing. Does, does our culture need to change around that? I mm. paid the tip, but I came away thinking, I don't know if that was service or not. So, you know, it'll it'll be interesting because I think if that starts to happen, particularly in liquor-led environments, um, customers' ep- expectations then rightly go up and servers and investment in servers and, and, and bar staff and waitresses and all those things that come with it, knowledge, um, I think, is going to have to go up exponentially to, to compensate for the expectation that a service charge will be applied in a liquor environment, for example. I think that's that's really true because it could go completely the other way, couldn't it? Because customers could see it as a real kind of like, oh, what? I'm just not going to bother uh, if I'm going to get hit with those sorts of charges every time for for, for nothing. So yeah. I think you're right. I think it'd be interesting. So so from a stickiness perspective so far, we've looked at the generational stuff and the issues of relevancy, communication, the career opportunities, and the reputation that you carry. But I guess. And I know this is a topic that you're very, very passionate about. There's the setup from a gender perspective in how mm-hmm. the industry is run and managed and led from that perspective, from that structure behind hospitality with this thing about actually trying to make it a more up-to-date, relevant uh, industry to work for. What do mm-hmm. you see as the issues and solutions in that regard, Karen? Well, you know, I 
it, 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 it the, the I've obviously come out of the pub industry, which um, is particularly male dominated. So I'm mm. probably more sensitized than other parts of hospitality. So I think it's better when you go towards bar and restaurant economies. And it's a shame that, you know, sort of over 50% of, of the f- sort of uh, hospitality spaces are run by women. Uh, but yet, as you go further and further up the food chain, representation in most organisations starts to diminish quite quickly. So I think there is a growing sort of responsibility on the industry to wake up and smell the coffee on that. You know, mm. we haven't got any large pub companies led yet by a woman. And um, and I think people are noticing that because my my big sort of conversation over the last few years about this has been about the pub space becoming a social democracy. I believe they are socially democratic and have been through history. But I sense that they're kind of pulling apart from that a little bit at the moment. There are a couple of pub companies trying to address that through better better socialization around race and women and social inclusion for people in the LGBTQ community, more welcoming. Um, but they have got a million miles to travel yet. And it's still it, it bothers me a little bit when people say the pub industry has changed. I don't think it's changed even halfway enough yet. Um, zoning in the pubs hasn't changed. I think the messages are largely the same. And I think there's still a lot of pub spaces, particularly in certain community spaces where if you were asked if you were to ask certain cohorts of that um uh, of that community whether they would go into that pub they wouldn't go there and i think that's a massive challenge for the industry because until they can get their heads around that and become more socially democratic and safer for people to go in then i think they will you know seek to lose relevance in certain areas so it's really important and I, you know 10 years ago when i picked up this idea because i was running certain types of venues in london and things like that i it just really shocked me how tribal certain pubs were and I thought mm. gosh there's a massive opportunity here because if only everybody that walked past the door felt they could come in and they felt welcome there and they felt it was a space for them wouldn't it be better and I feel like that from an employment perspective as well because you know certainly mountains in the last 10 years have been sort of moved to try and change that perception but it's very deep rooted in certain in certain parts of the country and certain parts of our community so I think that's a bit of a gate opener for pubs being relevant for the future. And I think some companies are doing really well to advance perception on that, but it's not enough. The industry as a whole has kind of got to take that on. And I and I honestly believe that you'd need to see much more overt um, mixed in boardrooms and at the top of organisations that show that this is truly, you know, a a, 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 a an industry that recognizes social social and uh, demographic inclusion i don't think it's anywhere near that yet yeah because it sounds to me like you're an advocate for and 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 why wouldn't we all wouldn't we all be um it's not just about male and female uh mm. board setup this is a much broader diversity we're looking for if we're going to kind of have a hospitality uh, industry that really understands what a multicultural society wants from its events and venues and places to go. I think one of the biggest things that has happened has been the revolution that's happened in the last sort of two years around women's 
viewing women's sport in pubs. Mm. I think that has been huge. And whilst not all pubs show sport, it's a big part of the um, inclusion conversation. And I remember way back when we started saying we would show um, uh, fixtures, football fixtures with the women's teams in, people thought we were, you know, we were mad. Um, but I'd obviously come out of working in the football industry before mm. I came to the pub industry. And I had this insight that was, you know, women's the women's uh, game around soccer, particularly given it was a fast growing sport in America and China. It was growing faster than male the male game in, in those countries. Um, it was inevitable that a ton of money was going to go behind that and therefore sponsorship, viewing. So when I come into the pub space, then I make that connection and say, this is going to be a, a really viable um, and enjoyable uh, sort of experience. But people thought we were, you know, a bit mad, really. Um, and here you go, you roll forward sort of six years on from that. And now, you know, people are really looking forward to those big fixtures and it's growing all the time. And, and you know, the, the game uh, for women is growing exponentially. But you're right. I think, there, are, you know, as part of that, we then were approached because gay women didn't feel, um, lesbian and queer women did not feel safe to watch football for women and they follow those teams in uh, in our pubs. And they were saying, can you start to create safer spaces for us? How do we tackle this? So we went on a mission then about that. So it's sort of, you know, from one little thing, lots of things start positive things then start to spring out about you go god you know i hadn't even thought about that you know you think everybody can come to the pub and watch football because football is very acceptable in pubs and people know how to manage that but for certain cohorts of our society a growing part of that is they didn't feel that they could socially socialize there and yet this was going to be one of the biggest growth opportunities for viewing football in pubs in the next sort of umpteen years so you're going oh we're missing a bit of a trick you know statistically 36 percent of under 25s don't really relate to gender anymore mm. so you know when you do these surveys these are really big numbers where people are saying actually in the future will gender even be important therefore gender exclusive spaces are going to be much more important because people just want to be who they are and be able to safely socialize in those environments with, without fear of bias accusation or persecution and i know those sound like massive words but then you're saying well if you're going to be that sort of space then can you attract uh, team members also who are who are reflecting the society and the community that you're trying to attract will they work there too so I think I made that kind of you know for me that was always the big connection that was the puzzle you were trying to solve is that particularly pubs which are you know cover such a broad spectrum of socialization habits for communities how do they start to become more inclusive how do they bring more of the community in how do they attract a broader base of of teams into them and at the same time then attract customers in because they go yeah there's people in there who I think are like me who understand me I feel welcome there so I think and that, you know that's I think that's really inspiring though when you do hit the nail on the head you really feel it yeah you know, they're much more places to be they're better they're brighter they're more colorful I, I would totally agree I mean that that is symptomatic I think of this societal change that is really really sweeping yes. through and i think if you can ignore that at your peril i mean i just linking quickly to the football thing i listened to something last night that sort of staggered me in that 
the Champions League fe- f- uh, format for for the women's leagues has been in operation. The new format has been in operation for two years. It's already mm-hmm. not fit for purpose because it's excluding too many teams because of the the phenomenal growth of the female football yeah. Yeah. industry and all those leagues. You know, you've you've now got top teams complaining they can't get into the Champions League because the format isn't right. And it was yeah, changed two it, years because it wasn't right then. I mean, <laughs> and the blind spot was people thought everybody wanted to watch a man's game, men playing. The actual conversation was people wanted to watch people winning. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so the fact that the England team, you know, they've been so successful has been a massive help here because they just wanted to see them win. So it didn't really matter whether it was a man or a woman. It was just they wanted to see their team win. And for a long time, people got kind of hung up on the fact they wanted to watch men playing. Mm. And uh, just that subtle shift of, of of idea then changes and broadens out the, you know, the opportunity for those spaces. So, you know, that's all kind of tick, tick, good. Yeah. So we have got, I guess, in, in summer, we've got board and people changes right, right across the board that's needed to bring new and different perspectives and a different approach to, I guess, I don't want to use the word incorrectly, but sort of segmentation of venues and all those things mm-hmm. are needed that will be great for customers, but also great uh, at attracting and retaining uh, different cohorts of employees too. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a lot more that's going on to sort of like uh, help disrupts, challenge the industry. What other things are out there that you think actually, if we're going to make UKH stickier, that we've really got to get to grips with. I mean, you can't ignore topics like AI wherever you go at the moment. Is that something that's also playing a part in something that actually hospitality has really got to get a grip of? And are there any other things that are like that, Karen, that that you think about? Yeah, I, well, definitely. If bringing up AI, I mean, I've not, I wasn't really that aware of AI while I was in the industry, but I think coming out, start to have lots of conversation with companies that are quite interested in that space, and it's really something that interests me because I think understanding the balance sheet as well as I do and assuming that we're hitting a little bit of a place where this might be the new normal. You know, I, I hate that phrase. <laughs> but maybe the way the businesses are trading now and the level of profitability and and the fact that, you know, companies have had to accept depressed levels of revenue and conversion means that the model has systemically change forever imagine that was true Mm. a route out of that to ensure the survival and and potential revival of the industry has got to sit with ai because that's where the, the organizations could take efficiency benefit and from my point of view would then tip this balance in favor of experience. And I do think it comes at the end of the day, people go to businesses where they have great experiences. And increasingly they're saying, we're going a bit less, but when we get there and we spend our money, we want great value for money and we want really brilliant experiences. And the value creation then sits in the human interaction rather than the central pieces where it looks as if the capacity and the capability exists for businesses to use AI to create more efficiency in the organization and therefore pay to protect you know, the, the guest experience. So I'm kind of looking forward to that a little bit because even though it, it brings, you know, if, if I was an accountant, I'd probably not be looking forward to it because I think there's a load of stuff there that... <laughs> You know, at the moment, you might pay a lot of financiers and you think, oh, well, there's actually a bot that might do quite a lot of that thinking for me. 
But when it comes to the experience end of the business, then maybe more value will go into that end, which has traditionally been the bit that gets starved first. Yeah. Businesses are compromised. And I'd love to see that because that then means we come off being a minimum wage payer or, or a living wage payer. And it starts to become a more valued currency to be able to make, do and create things. And I think that would be a very interesting zone for hospitality to suddenly find themselves in because they're constantly trying to process uh, things to create efficiencies to ensure the businesses remain viable. And they're sort of sitting on the model a bit. Yeah. Do you think, though, with the years of turmoil that they've had in the run-up to this point, there's there's a real risk of those efficiencies just end up being banked to backfill holes? Or do you think the industry will really kind of like wake up and invest it back in the experience? I think there is a real risk they will will bank the efficiency. But I think the biggest challenge in the first instance is actually changing. Hospitality, unlike retail, retail generally would have mm. investment for portfolio around tech. Mm. And hospitality hasn't generally approached tech that way. Mm. Um, and I think the biggest challenge in the first instance is actually having the insight and vision to be able to strategize investment pots that then set up the fact that you'll be able to things to create advantage they've got to get more organized in their strategic intent so that they can use tech in a more organized way and i'm seeing quite a lot of platforms set up at the moment that's sort of harnessing the idea of multiple formats because you know there's so many apps and widgets and they're all very clever and they all do remarkable things but it's chaos you know i was talking to a founder a couple of weeks ago and they said god you know in the last year i've signed up 15 different tech widgets <laughs> and i was you know and they were asking me for some advice about what the hell do i do now and i said well it's all a bit of a muddle really because certain things were going over the top of other things and i do think there's going to be a rationalization of that because everybody's getting highly excitable about technology technological advantage and people are able to you know this is a, this is an economy where 45 percent of revenue is created out of independence mm. therefore how do you get tech scale into smaller companies uh, and they're doing that but it's untidy so i think you know there are some really inspiring businesses that are starting to harness platforms that bring some of those solutions into one place so that small and mid-cap businesses can access the same advantages as large companies but i think you're going to see a real reshuffling and I and I I hope that happens fast because otherwise the bigger companies will take advantage faster and potentially that makes it even harder for the small entrepreneurial businesses. So one of the things that I'm doing at the moment is getting involved in looking at how we can support founders and small businesses to create the same advantage that a big company would have quicker and get access to information and insight quicker so that they can enjoy the benefit of, of, of all of that. And then that will create efficiency in their business, which I'm sure in an entrepreneurial business, they'll immediately want to reinvest in growing their business. In a larger business, they may decide to scoop that off and and and, and, and give that to their shareholders. I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I, for one, really, really hope that the hospitality industry as a whole kind of like really grabs this ai bow wave i guess that's going to come through and uses it in that in that force for for good when it comes to experience because i i think there's a lot of fear around ai and what it's going to do to certain industries going forward i'd really 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 
love to see the hospitality industry you know really use it to be a much more efficient engine so that they can plow things into people and experiences because like you say that's what we go for we go out to lose the day make a connection have an experience and and then actually you're not thinking about what you've spent it's not a transaction at that point you know it's a proper experience and i really really hope that it does that karen we are coming to the end of the show but i would like you to try and summarize for us if if you can in terms of what you see as the key things here in transforming a whole industry and making it stickier so you know to continue and maybe over egg the sticky theme i have my sticky notes section at the end of the show for summary so if you were to fit three pieces of advice you'd like to be ringing in the ears of uk hospitality as to how this industry can be transformed and made more sticky what advice would you leave on those three sticky notes karen The first one would be that the industry needs to make sure they are supporting their founders and entrepreneurial businesses um, so that our hospitality society doesn't become hugely corporate and and driven by just the big brands who do a great job. But I do believe the lifeblood of, of the industry sits in all the people who are prepared to put their neck on the table and start things up. So I'm hoping that um we have a, a more uh a really rich ecosystem of entrepreneurs that the industry protects that's my mm. first one mm-hmm. and i think that will make us more sticky for younger people who will be inspired by seeing that um second one would be about everyone has a duty to create socially relevant spaces through inclusivity mm. and you know work hard don't try and kid yourself that you're creating socially inclusive spaces and then change nothing about it other than you you put nicer cushions in you know i'm talking about you know how do you deal with some of the real challenges to create spaces where people you know people from all kinds of backgrounds and and, and diverse backgrounds feel included when they walk in and and those occasions are recognized so i think that's really important and i think that will make the industry more sticky and then finally i think that at the bottom of it we can look at all of all the frills the third one for me would be that the industry does need to deal with real pay benefits and work-life balance for people at the sharp end because there's still too many examples of people not working in the right conditions. And I think that it's no good talking about sustainability and inclusivity initiatives when very basic considerations for people who have to earn livings every day uh, are still going unchecked. So I would say the industry needs to get their house in order as much as any industry ever can so that it has a great reputation as an employer and it'll come from pay benefits and work-life balance and i think until that's dealt with i think we'll always have a challenge on our hands so i hope that there's a you know a, a big emphasis on that as we start to grow back from what has been a really really difficult time for all businesses big or small so you know those would be my three sticky notes brilliant i mean who thought that you could solve and transform an, uh, an entire industry on the back of three sticky notes. But I think if UKH had a look at those three, I think they'd have a pretty good chance. Karen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here. I've loved listening to you. And I, I wish you all the best as a fellow sticky person in your conquest and fight to make things stickier. Thank you very much. Okay. You take care, Karen. Thank you. Okay, everyone. That was Karen Bosher. 
And if you'd like to find out a bit more about her or any of the topics that we've talked about today, please go ahead and check out the show notes. So that concludes today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting, and heard something maybe that will help you become a stickier, more successful business from the inside going forward. If you have, please like, comment and subscribe. It really helps. I'm Andy Gorham, and you've been listening to the Sticky from the Inside podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>